Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Gwen Whittle, a two-time Oscar-nominated sound professional whose credits include Saving Private Ryan, WandaVision, this summer's newest blockbuster Jurassic World Dominion, and the much-anticipated sequel, Avatar, The Way of the Water. In today's conversation, the Skywalker sound member and I break down some of Hollywood's biggest sound moments. We discuss her beginnings in the industry and why the prospect of sound editing intrigued Gwen in ways that sound mixing never did. Her relationship with detail-oriented directors like Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, and David Fincher the process of layering animal sounds to create the dinosaur voices in the Jurassic World franchise, as well as how the pandemic suddenly impacted Gwen's work, all of this and much more. Me and Gwen remotely recorded this conversation while she was in the process of temp mixing Jurassic World Dominion, which at the time was being privately screened for test audiences. She was very generous with her time despite her overwhelming schedule. So, during a brief segment discussing the international ADR on the first Jurassic World, Gwen refers to the film's director as Brad Bird, who, by the way, directed another great movie we talk about, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. But on her behalf, I just wanted to clarify that both the first and this latest Jurassic World films were directed by another great filmmaker, Colin Trevorrow. If you enjoy the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes. We'd love to ask you to support us by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Gwen, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. It's, it's truly a pleasure. I figure we could start all the way back with your beginnings as an assistant and working with awesome people like Ben Burt and Richard Hims. I was wondering, what were the most valuable sound editing concepts you feel like you were taking away from those early years of mentorship? Yeah, I started a long time ago, actually. My first film, I was a picture assistant. It was a film called Smooth Talk, and it was actually one of Laura Dern's first features, which is kind of kind of cool to sort of reconnect with her on Jurassic World Dominion. As far as sound stuff goes, you know, I started back, as my kids call it, the Jurassic days back in MAG, and their crews were a lot bigger, and it was very, very collaborative, and there was a big crew. It was pretty even women and men, and I kind of got hooked up with a really fabulous dialogue editor, Michael Silvers, who's worked, he's won, a, he won the Academy Award for The Incredibles. He, he won that with Randy Tom. So, but I worked with him for years and years and years and years, and I kind of learned how to do my job by watching him and how he laid out his tracks because back then the editor would, would cut and they would, you know, lay out all this stuff and then the assistant would build it. So you could actually hear and see how everything was laid out and what the editors did. So I kind of learned a lot from him. Back in those days, what I learned from Richard Hims and Gary Rydstrom and Ben Burt was sort of how to behave on a stage and when to keep your mouth shut and when to say something if something's wrong. And basically as an assistant, you don't say very much. You just kind of absorb and you watch kind of thing. So... There's definitely an etiquette and a protocol on how you speak to people. Kind of thing. You can't just go and go to all fanboy to the director or the actors or something like that. You have to be professional. So that's kind of what I learned from them. Oh. 
my super suit? What? Where is my super suit? I You know, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the difference between sound editing and sound mixing, I invite them to listen to our conversation with Kevin O'Connell, who explains it flawlessly, because there's so much more we got to get into. Why do you think the idea of sound editing intrigued you in ways that sound mixing never did? Well, again, back in the day in mag, you know, it was very tactile. It was very hands-on. It was very, you know, you, you know I had this, my arms were in great shape. I had a six-gang. I was like, and it was very methodical, and I kind of liked that. Mixing was very technical. I was never really techie. It just didn't appeal to me. Also, with editing, there's different stages. You're even when you're assisting, you're you know you're spotting, then you're cutting, and then you're mixing. If you're a mixer, you're always in that dark room. You're always in a windowless room under a lot of pressure. When you're editing, you go to ADR. You're talking with the actors. You're watching the actors and directors interact. You're part of the the process for a longer period of time than just being a mixer. And I think it, it was not the same thing all the time really appealed to me. So I liked, the, I liked the mixing it up a little bit. I'm curious to ask you about the process of receiving a movie and the early spotting that you do for, for sound effects and ADR. How do you try and split up your time and resources within your team? Because, I mean, I'm lucky enough to talk to you, but there's a wonderful team that surrounds you. Always. It's never just me. So, again, when you're starting out, how do you decide what needs the immediate attention and how are you going to split up that, you know, that long schedule ahead? Well, normally you get a budget, and based on that budget and the scope of the film, you decide how many effects editors you need, how many dialogue editors you need. Usually you need more effects editors and dialogue editors. usually have me and another dialogue editor, depending on sort of how fast you have to get it done. You know, it's that triangle, good, good, fast, and cheap. So you can only do, do two of those, right? So depending on how fast you have to do it. I treat the low-budget films I work on exactly the same way as I treat the high-budget films. It's really hard to do a bad job because you, you, you just can't cut the corners. It just feels wrong. So if you have to go fast and cheap, you have to hire more people. You have to, I mean, you have to, you just kind of you sort of put the puzzle together that way. And then you figure out, again, depending on the, you know, if it's a sci-fi movie with a lot of dinosaurs, you know you're going to need a lot of sound design just because you can't go out and record a Dimetrodon because they don't exist. If you're dealing with a war movie, you can. You can go find old tanks. You can go find guns. You can find, you know, the, the equipment that they use that you can go record that stuff. So the kind of editor you hired is different. Ford versus Friday, which I didn't work on, but, you know, you have access to the cars. So it's a, it's a kind of different thing. Normally we spot with the picture editor and or the director, depending on the, the timing and how close you are to a temp. Normally you do a temp mix first, which is a very good way to know where the problematic spots are in the track and what's going to need more work. You decide what you want for the temp, how much extra group stuff you're going to add in. Do you need a lot of crowds, that sort of thing. And you decide what you want to ADR. Do they need to change plot points? What kind of, you know, stuff, the stuff that, I mean, they've been living with this film a lot longer than you have. So they have to catch up to speed. It's just sort of what they know so you can help them tell their story with sound. And so that's what the first spotting is. And you decide sort of with the sound designer, effects person, 
what Foley is going to cover, what the effects are going to cover, and you kind of work out with your, you know, usually you hire people you like and that you know, so it's pretty, that's the whole point of it, right? To like who you work with. And it's usually pretty seamless. You say, okay, I'll do real one, you do real two for dialogue. Right, you know, while I'm spotting the ADR, you can do this. And we just kind of, communication, we just communicate all the time. I communicate constantly with the effects people. If we have time, we go to Foley playbacks. And then you just try and make it all work within the within the schedules, which change like water. They just change all the time, the schedules, particularly the COVID stuff is, is kind of crazy. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, I was supposed to work on one Marvel TV series, but they weren't hadn't shot enough stuff. So, oh, here, why don't you do WandaVision? It's like, okay, I'll do WandaVision. You just keep juggling the stuff. And then release dates are good things to have. It makes forces people to... Okay, we've got to actually, and then you usually back it up for the release date. You need to be have your printmaster stuff, you know, a week for here, and then you kind of you need 19 days for your final mix, and then you need your, you know 20 days for effects premixing. And you kind of back up from there. If you have zero time, you need more people. As you say this, I realize that so much of sound editing is really about choosing the sound that fits the emotional landscape of a specific story. You know, for you, you're working up at, at Skywalker, and I wonder, which has an amazing sound effects library. I wonder how tempting it is sometime when you're starting on a project to return to a library as opposed to marching on into the field to record new sounds. Where do you strike the balance of those two? Well, as a dialogue ADR person, everything is new, number one. It's illegal to reuse stuff dialogue-wise because you have to pay the actors again. So you can't just keep reusing the stuff. As far as effects goes, it really kind of depends where you are. Like for a temp, you might throw in ambiences or the motorcycle that fits the build just for the temp, but then go back and find the real one. They're always recording new stuff for every... I, don't, I can't think of a single show at Skywalker where they haven't gone out and recorded new stuff. To that point, though, there are legacy sounds. Like the like the T Rex, or it's classic T Rex. Gary Rydstrom, brilliance. You know, it's like you, you gotta. That's that's the roar. So you use that one. Boy, my head being right all the time. Vehicles are constantly being re-recorded. Ambiences too. Doors, even doors are being recorded. I mean, everything. <laughs> yeah. So the library just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger because people keep recording new stuff. So Before we, we dive into ADR and dialogue editing, I was curious to ask you about your relationship with production mixers. Sound often gets the short end of the stick, but when you open up files, when do you stop and say, you know what, this production mixer did a great job on this? More frequently in the past, so say five or six years, I think we've had a, I mean, we're not, it depends on the film. We're not always hired, but, you know, sometimes it depends when we come onto the show. If they know who we are, we always have a conversation to begin with. And most of them, again, I'm very, very lucky to work with fantastic recordists. And so we're able to save a lot of stuff. And I think they really want their stuff to live. So there's definitely been a lot of conversation or if there's some sort of problematic scene, they'll say, you know, I tried to fix it with this. Where do you put the, the mic? You know, I tried it this way. I tried it this way, that kind of thing. So they tell us what they've tried. And, you know, I would recommend using this mic on this channel kind of thing. As soon, well, when, when, when do I tell them they did a great job? After I'm done spotting the ADR. That's when I tell them they've done a great job. If I have like very little ADR, I'm like, oh my God, that's brilliant. It's beautiful. Sometimes it just, you know, 
the wind machines and you know there's just stuff that they have no control over and and it kind of is what it is so as long as we have something a good guide to follow we're working on tron and they had those i don't know if you remember they had those light suits and they had actual lights going through them and you can actually at one point you can hear jeff bridges on the set saying can you guys hear the sound of the, the, this light coming through this suit? And it would change as they got close to one another because something something about the lights of frequency changed as they moved closer to each other. So that was kind of a problem I had this lady. She did a process called Nova and she went through every production take that was used and she Nova'd it. And then we went and we, we cut it after that. But that was kind of a, an unusual scenario. That's a case where the costume people and the sound people should have given enough time been able to talk earlier before they even started shooting. Well, that's interesting. I, I was going to bring up this example, and I'm actually going to play a clip that has the actual onset recording, then it transitions into your pre-mix, and then the final mix, so people can listen to it now. How can he be so afraid of his own creation? I mean, he built glue. Why doesn't he just end him? He could, but it would require reintegration. Yeah, all right. Flynn would never survive the event. It would mean the end of them both. If he refuses to save himself, then I will. How? I'm going through the portal. Clue wants Flynn's disc, not mine. I'm gonna find out and we're gonna figure this thing out from the other side. This may be Clue's game here, but in my world, he's gone in one keystroke. But I can't do anything unless I get to the portal. And my gut's telling me that you don't want to be stuck in this place for eternity. What's fascinating to me about that case is proof of sometimes testing mid-production, because it's my understanding that producers call a couple days into filming, the sound department panicking and saying like, before we go any further, can we test and make sure it, it, it works? I mean, is that often the idea of testing something mid-production to make sure that down the road you're going to be safe? I mean, in the perfect world, it's tested before production, so that you're not wasting people's time. I mean, the whole fact that Jeff Bridges said something also helped. You know, if your actor's saying, we got a problem here, you know, that's, that always helps solve the problem as opposed to solving in post. Before going any further, for any listeners who maybe not be familiar, ADR is the post-production step that allows you to go back and get those lines from the actors. Maybe there was a wind machine, maybe they want to change the line. Now they've got that out of the way. The first project I wanted to ask you about was, was Saving Private Ryan because we were lucky enough to talk to Gary Rystrom about, you know, the Omaha Beach landing. That was a pretty intense show and there was um, me and two other dialogue editors, Sarah Boulder and Eva Stompke Oatfield. And there was sort of like three sections to that film. So there was the Omaha Beach landing and then there was the kind of the walking and the kind of getting their part of it. And then there was the end battle. And each one of those things had very intense parts to it and so I think each one was was I think it was nine nine reels ish and so we split them up so that we each had one yucky part in each one so we wouldn't go home completely slayed and depressed because sometimes it gets it's hard working on that stuff it gets under your skin so a lot of that production was really usable which was which was kind of cool I mean it also helped that because it was war is kind of gritty it was not like sci-fi clean Tron, you know, where it was a you know, dust-free environment where you had to be so clean. I mean, you know, they're, they're running, they're yelling, there's sand, there's explosions. So it can be kind of grittier, more documentary feel to it, which helped kind of save some of the production. There's parts where they're clomping over bricks and, and stuff like that. And we were able to keep the production of that because it was recorded well enough that the voices were not 
completely obliterated by the feet. So the guy did he did a good job on that. That was an intense film, but like even Munich, we were there was a time when we were working on Munich. I went to London and we did a outside loop rope session in the middle of Ramadan. We had Israelis, Palestinians, Cypriot Greeks, regular Greeks. We had all these people that normally hate each other politically that are really kind of at war with each other. We had them all out there, all together, all recording. It was actually it, it was very 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 cool. We went to some weird abandoned nuclear you know, silo missile site that was no longer in use. And we just had them running through hallways and stuff. And that was kind of an amazing experience. But yeah, you totally, you go out and you get all those languages. That first Jurassic World, I think we had, we had so many languages because Brad Bird wanted it so that when you walk through the the big building and you, and you see all the exhibits, he wanted them to be all in different languages. So I had Japanese and Thai and Polish and Russian and German, French, England, you know, all those kind of things, so that you would hear it was an international place. Welcome to the Innovation Center, where technology meets prehistory. Join us on this exciting journey. George Lucas expressed how dialogue editing may not appear as sexy to discuss as part of the sound editing process, but it's definitely more important than people realize. You had this to say about it, quote, Dialogue is the queen of the track. If you don't understand the dialogue and you can't follow the story, then why are you telling it? Close quote. How hard do you try and polish up a rough take, whether it's the original from the take or whether it's an alternative, before eventually just giving up and saying, you know what, we got to schedule ADR? It depends so much on the director's appetite for ADR. ADR is a really powerful tool, and as long as they think about it as a tool, it's just something that they can have available to them. They don't have to use it. But if you don't have it, you can't use it. So if you don't record it, then there's no option when you're in the final mix. You're like, oh my God, that just sounds so ratty. Don't we have anything else? I was like, well, you should have ADR. You know, it's kind of, it was spotted, but you omitted it. <laughs> so you, you can't make people do something they don't want to do. A lot of British actors, a lot of European actors, they are not afraid of ADR because that's just kind of what they do. And a lot of them, the Meryl Streeps of the world, see just another crack at their performance, which, you know, so it's just not scary to them. A lot of American actors don't like it quite so much. They have a harder time with it. I'm not quite sure why that is. It might be a, a mindset sort of thing. I mean, I understand. They've said this this line, I don't know, 14 times, 15 times, 20 times while they were shooting it. I have to say it again, really, kind of thing. But if you, again, it's like you're, a, you're in a corset movie and it, your hair is great, you look great, your performance is great. 
but a plane's going overhead and you never said another take like that because you're a good actor and you give the editors lots of flavors. You can't, you know, and if you take the plane out, your voice gets thinner and thinner. Even with all the tools you have now, it's really hard to get rid of that sound. So some stuff, I mean, you just know that there's just no way for, you know, wind machines really, really, really hard. Granted, it's probably also going to be windy in the shot too because their hair is blowing and stuff like that. I mean, I'd really try hard to keep production. Everybody likes production. I, I'm a big fan of production. I'm not sort of, you know, pro ADR all the time. But I do think it is a powerful tool that gets unnecessarily dissed. On the ADR stage, you mentioned you like to use three mics, two booms, and a lav, all recording simultaneously. It depends. Sometimes I've kind of backed off on, on, the, on the three mic thing. So I, It was a bit too overkill? It's a bit, little bit too overkill. Usually I look at the production reports, I see what they use on the set. A lot of times they use different mics if it's interior, exterior, and I try and sort of follow along, you know, kind of request those mics and then also whatever lav they use. A really good ADR mixer, the Tommy O'Connells and the Doc Canes and the Mike Millers of the world, they're so good they can actually tell when they, you know, how it was mic'd and how close it was. And they'll, they'll just kind of dial it and I just have to sit there and call sync and take notes, which, which is really nice for me. And then when they play it back, they also sell it. So it's like, oh, God, that sits in there so nicely. I mean, it may not be six microphones at the same time, but in the ADR stage, what kind of qualities are you looking for if one microphone is, is giving you something different than the other? Well, a lot of times, if it's a stage that's used to just doing commercials or voiceover, someone gets loud, guarantee you they won't catch it and it'll distort. So if you have that second mic, it's a little bit farther back, a little bit lower preamp, the actor doesn't have to do it again because that second mic will catch it. It's all about making the actor happy and easier and so they can settle into get back to their performance and remember who they were and kind of get back to where they are. That's my job is to make them remember that they're on the plains of, you know, Madagascar somewhere, <laughs> whatever. Jumping from Madagascar, this is not a smooth segue, but I, I would love to ask you about your relationship with David Fincher and, and sound designer Ren Kleiss. You three worked together, correct me if I'm wrong, from Fight Club in 99 to Gone Girl, which was 15 years later. In what ways do you think their understanding of sound is different from other professionals? And, and is there a way you feel like they're bringing the best out of you as a sound artist? David Fincher is not afraid of anything. He's not afraid of doing many, many takes. He's not afraid of ADR. He's not afraid of pushing that envelope. He and Ren Kleiss have known each other since they're in high school. I mean, they've known each other for a really long time, which makes their relationship, they, they have a vernacular that the two of them speak, which means that Ren can then translate what David said to us to help us, you know, kind of get to where he wants to go. Fincher will say, I, I want to hear alts on, on this line. So you'll, you'll, you'll take that line and you'll go through all the production and anything that's reasonable to use, you'll, you'll cut you know, six different alts and you'll send it back to Mo using the pick system. And I'll listen to it at three in the morning or whatever it is he'll listen to. He gives you notes back, but he's constantly working the track. He's constantly working. I mean, down to the syllables, whatever he has in his head, he'll, he'll keep hammering at it until he gets exactly what he wants. He'll do over a hundred takes of ADR and then he'll play back. I want the TH from take 16, the ST from, you know, whatever, and you piece together, and you're like, wow, that actually worked. So keeping track of the notes with him is really difficult, but uh, they're both geniuses. And Ren, and you gave me that clip of Zodiac to listen to, and I was just a dialogue editor on that. And all the brilliance of that scene was from Ren and David Parker, the mixer. All the different perspectives and all the really subtle differences in the futzing, depending on where you were. That's pure Ren and David Parker genius. Hello, this is Melvin Belli. 
Who am I speaking with? This is the Zodiac speaking. Do you think you need medical care? Medical, not mental. Do you have health problems? I'm sick. I have headaches. Headaches? I have headaches too, but a chiropractor stopped them a week ago. I think I can help you. There are a lot of recordings of famous people, a lot of sort of quotes, which we, we didn't have. I don't know if we couldn't get the rights for them, but we tried to sort of recreate them. So we cast voices that were similar. And then, of course, they all sounded too pretty. And we actually took the recordings, we put them on a quarter-inch tape. At the ranch, there's a small beach and a, and a, a lake. We, and we threw it into the lake. We threw the quarter-inch into the lake. We stood on it. We dragged it through the sand. And I got, that stuff is tough. We put it, and then we recorded over it. It sounded exactly the same. It was like it didn't sound like it had been trash on it. So we tried it again. We did everything just to just kind of make it sound old. It's actually kind of fun just standing on, like dragging it through the sand and kind of crunching it up and stuff. That's the only time we've ever done that. We did a lot of, I guess you'd call it worldizing, where you take and you re-record it into, you, you play it into a different space. I guess I think George Lucas came up with the term worldizing. So we did a lot of that stuff, but a lot of it was also Ren and David Parker. The speakerphone was kind of in use, but we didn't. We used it some, but we didn't really use it very much. It was mostly the stuff that they did in the mix. Pops, this is Harmon Mankiewicz, but we have to call him Mank. Mankiewicz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. Why? No need to be humble, Mr. Mankiewicz. Pictures the talk of the future. They're gonna need people who honor words, give them voice. There's a golden age coming when all the world will be a stage. I heard the story about Mank, the latest Fincher movie. I know you didn't work on it, but in terms of worldizing, they were talking about the fact that before the final mix or at the final mix, they re-recorded their actual mono track in an environment. And I wonder for you, whether it's obviously doesn't have to be that specific project, does worldizing sometimes kind of lock you into the quality of a recording that is less flexible to rework later in the final mix? Totally, but you always have the original. I mean, you always have what you started with. You carry both. I mean, a lot of times, if you render something because you put, you know, Altaverb or something on it, you always got the, the original right there. You can always feed more of it back in. Like if you futz too much, just feed a little bit more of the, the regular thing. And oh, all of a sudden I think it's clearer. Or you can trash the whole thing and just start again. I just want to carve out a second to talk about, you know, your work with Brad Bird, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and Tomorrowland, because he describes sound in a very eloquent way. I think sound is a huge part of the experience. It's a great emotional tool, and people who were very clever with sound and creating sound effects that felt more like things should sound rather than what they did sound like, recognize, I think, what a huge part of the dreaming experience of movies is about. Because Ghost Protocol was Brad Bird's first live action film, I wonder if you perceived how having a director who came from animation shaped the way he was thinking about sound as a creative tool. It's actually, it's a good question. 
I mean, Brad is a brilliant human being. He's, you know, he's a, a really remarkable mind. I think it really helped that he was working with Gary Rydstrom, who he's worked, he worked with a lot. And I would go to spotting sessions with him and Gary would say, so Brad, how can sound help you tell the story? There were a lot of sort of very fun effects in Ghost Protocol and just even the car stuff. I mean, there's one part where the, I can't remember the exact scene, but the car's going around a really tight turn. I think it was probably in the Burj Khalifa part of it. And it just, it's actually one of my favorite effects of the whole movie. And it's just a really simple thing, but it's just a very cool effect. We did quite a bit of ADR, but all the stuff that was ADR was, was mostly extra stuff. A lot of stuff with Tom, breathing and effort stuff, like when he's flying around outside the building sort of stuff. A lot, I mean, a lot of ADR in the, in the end is usually huffing and puffing and breathing and running because that stuff gets lost in the production stuff because there's all sorts of other things going on. You want to keep your character alive. Especially in these action films, the reason I think you put so much effort into the efforts, you know, which again is the breathing and the panting, is that it allows you to emotionally track a character doing a chase. I remember in um, Avatar, there's a scene where Jake is being chased by the black wolves. I can't remember what they're called. The dire wolves? Anyway, he's being chased through big foliage kind of thing. And we recorded Sam Worthington, you know, doing his, his stuff. I had out probably three or four takes. And it's sort of, I, I cut my favorite. But then when you put the music and the wolves and the, and the, the foley in, you, you, I mean, you, you kind of follow him. But he kept saying, I'm losing my main character. I need to know where he is. I don't need to hear every breath. But so I had to go back and I had to like put in the stuff where you could hear her more, just a little bit more emotive stuff. So what about this one? Run, don't run, what? Run, definitely run! <laughs> I mean, Cameron is genius in his, his, you know, he really knows what he's doing, but it made me realize you don't want to lose track of your character. Yes, the cars are exploding and all this cool stuff's happening, but where's your guy? You got to know where your guy is. For Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, you had a lot of Russian spoken in the film, though a lot of it was shot with the Czech actors. And I know that you went through the movie with Dmitry Makarov, who is from St. Petersburg, and together you spotted every accent that needed to be replaced in ADR. So when replacing a voice role with a different performer, are you involved in that casting process as you try to match the right face to the right voice? It kind of depends on if they're an on-screen speaking role, they're SAG rules. So if the actual actor is an on-screen person, I think they have to have right of first refusal. I mean, SAG people would know for sure, but I think you have to give them a, a crack at it. And then if for some reason director doesn't like it or whatever, they can revoice it. But I mean, Dimitri was really good because he could coach them. He, he coached Tom Cruise in his Russian. He made sure his Russian was right. And Czech at least has the right sort of root. I mean, it's, just, it's like, you know, Spanish and Italian. You're, you're kind of close as you can kind of get it there. So he would help me work with the actors. And he would also say, yeah, that's fine. Or because I wouldn't know. I'd say, don't use that, use that, don't use that, use this part. This kind of thing. So he helped with the editing the whole way through. Майор Егоров, ваши документы, пожалуйста. Начальство надо знать. Я не могу вас найти. Проверь еще раз, рядовой. 
Igorov. I quickly wanted to touch on the Jurassic World franchise with the new chapter Dominion coming out this June. You know, we're obviously standing on the shoulder of giants when it comes to creating a soundscape for the franchise, and we're lucky enough to speak to Gary Reitstrom about his process recording sounds for the original film back in 93. If listeners want, I definitely invite them to check out that episode. But it seems to be a trend among the sound designers for the Jurassic Park series. Could you talk about layering multiple animal sounds to create the voice of dinosaurs that feel unique yet realistic at the same time? That's probably more of a question for Al Nelson, who is the sound designer for the Jurassic World series, but it's hard to make big, growly animals sound different. And also, the most iconic one of all, of course, is that T-Rex sound, the very, very classic T-Rex sound. So everyone's always, you know, bless Gary Rydstrom for that, but also, damn you, Gary, because you're, you're, you've got to make something that good but different. And you have stuff to make something that's scary, that, you know, it sounds like it's got some bite and some teeth behind it. Like the second one, the one that Jay Mayone had with the Indoraptors. They wanted it very high-pitched and angry all the time, but it has to not annoy you. So it's a complicated, delicate balance. And layering the animals... I mean, if you don't, if you don't layer them, then it's just an alligator or it's just a lion. I, I don't know. Did, have you ever seen? It's actually brilliant. I don't know if Gary shares with people, but he did a thing for the first Jurassic of how he made that that T Rex roar. He did all the different like it starts with it shows the same shot of T Rex coming over the the fence, and then it's got like says tree crash, and you hear the tree crash when the foot comes down, and then it says like you know blowhole, and then the, like the alligator and the and the lion and the stuffing, and then you put it all together, and you see why that layering works. And all of a sudden, you've got a whole new animal. The key element is the high-frequency scream element, which is a baby elephant that we recorded. The big elephants we recorded weren't very interesting at that time, but the baby elephant came out and made this scream, and the baby elephant only did this once, and we kept trying to get it to do it again. And the handlers were saying, we never heard it do that before. That's a weird sound. So every time the T-Rex screams in the first Jurassic Park, that baby elephant is part of the major roar. Here it is by itself, the little cute baby elephant and the high-pitched scream that it made. That was a baby elephant. So now see how that blends with the rest. As a visual effects heavy movie like this one is being completed, you're racing around the clock to complete some version of temp tracks that are great enough to screen for a test audience. Again, this is where an early version of the movie is screened for a private crowd to get a sense of how well the story and the characters are playing out in terms of emotion. So how much of these temp mixes is actually retained? And if I were to compare the sound in the first test screening to the final sound mix most audiences are going to get to experience, what are some of the biggest differences I may notice? I think that the biggest difference would probably, there'd be more specifics filled in. I mean, again, temps, they're hard and they're draining, but they're really good because they, they really pinpoint where the problems are and they pinpoint where sound is really needed to help tell the story. You also make sure your effects are working with the music. We're not You're not hitting the same tones. I mean, you don't always have the final music, but you have like mock-ups yet. So, you know, kind of where you're sitting chance are you're going to know like is is the music going to hit that explosion or, or are they going to leave room for us for the effects to sit through or you know you said do you need a scream there that kind of thing kind of let you know where the holes are i've never worked with christopher nolan but if you work with christopher nolan that first temp everything builds off of that 
he never goes backwards at all. That's all the basis for the next one. And even if you don't work from it, it kind of all starts with that. And you always say, well, you know, the first temp, I really liked when, when we had this, 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 and this, and this. And so, so that you always carry what you had before. I mean, and a lot of times, like for instance, in this one, you know, all the crowd stuff, you have to redo it because for SAG rules, you have to redo all, all the extra voices, but kind of got like a, a temp stash of ah, kind of stuff that you can, that I can use. As, and the effects, it's definitely, they just get more specific and more precise. And you get, you know, you probably go and record the real motorcycle as opposed to the temp one you threw in. So it, it just gets better. You know, you'll probably have an Atmos mix. You'll probably have it be you spread wider. It'll, it'll probably be mixed more carefully. Yeah, it'll just be better. I wanted to show them something that wasn't an illusion. Something that was real. Something that they could see and touch. Creation is an act of sheer will. Life will find a way. We can't keep her here forever. They find out we're never gonna see her again. We gotta protect her, that's our job. Humans and dinosaurs can't coexist. We created an ecological disaster. Ellie Sattler. Alan Grant. You know, since we began our conversation talking about budgets and schedules, do you feel like the film's release getting pushed from June of 2021 to June 22 allowed you to explore sound ideas on a deeper level? Or did your post-production schedule mostly remain the same? Well, what happens is when they push or we, or we go on a hiatus is because the picture is still being edited. So when you come back, you're just conforming. You're conforming, 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 conforming. I remember on Super 8, I don't know how that movie stayed together. The changes were, you know, they would take like half a scene from this reel and move it to this reel and then put it together. And it's and it worked. They did that multiple times. It's like, how does this movie hold together? And it did every time. It, it was amazing. But it takes time to pull, you know, all those pieces. It's like cleaning your house. You know, you pull everything apart. But oh no, the kitchen's now got to move to the bathroom. So you have to take all those pieces and move it to the bathroom. And then, oh, now we want to put it back. But only half of it. And then you move it all back, kind of thing. So you, a lot of that time is spent just putting the pieces back together and then, then making sure that you, you hit the hit the right beats and that all the things, nothing gets lost in that translation. Like, for instance, I think that if we had finished our final mix at the end of June, it would sound great. And I think that when we finish our final mix in August, well, pieces will just be in different places and it'll still sound great. I thought we could uh, go ahead with some rapid-fire questions. If I say the words Steven Spielberg, what's the first story that comes to mind? Oh, it's a bit braggy, so I don't know if it's worth to say it. There was a time on um, Munich, I think it was, we were in a mixed stage in L.A., and we just played back a reel, and he was pretty happy, and he was leaving, and he stopped, and he turned around, and he said, he looked at me, he said, you have the best ADR chops in L.A., and then he left, I was like, so you've worked with both Pixar and Blue Sky Studios on franchises like Ice Age, uh, Toy Story, and so many more. So on a creative level, are there sound techniques and shortcuts that you can apply to an animated film that you simply couldn't do 
in live action and vice versa? Everything in animation is so beautifully recorded, so gorgeously recorded. It's so lovely. And so animation is different. It's hard in, in a way that it's how you make stuff from sounding too sterile to me. How do you keep it sounding alive? Keeping some sort of real world, maybe maybe a little dirt because they're, they're beautifully recorded. Yes, they're always obsessing. So they send me stuff. Do you think this could be okay? Is this recording? I'm like, compared to the stuff we put into live action, it's beautiful. I don't say that, but no, everything is always really nicely recorded. I mean, every now and then something's distorted, but that's, that's usually pretty easy to fix. Live action just needs so much more work. So it's kind of fun. This last week, I've been sort of going back through the Jurassic tracks and Every time you open the reel, you can fix something. Every single time. It's like, oh my God, how did I miss it? How could I get rid of that? There's that tick. It's like, you can be super obsessive. And so with animation, you just become more obsessive. And you're just like, oh, maybe, you know, it would be nice if maybe that end of, they just finish that sentence, you know, like come down on the words. So you look, see if you can find a, a little something. So you can always, you know, editing your things. I'm sure you say, God, I wish they'd just done, couldn't you have just finished that sentence? <laughs> that kind of thing. So you look for all sorts of, take out breaths and that kind of thing unless it's really necessary so you can no it's just it's just different you're not dealing with background so much in animation and, and smoothing out air and in production you're dealing a lot with making sure that they all sound like they're the same place at the same time because they're shot on set make sure all the that they all smooth out in animation you're just dealing with with other stuff you've discussed the fact that you like to set up your track layout based on the taste of the final mixer sometimes. How does an organized editing workflow do you think makes for a better sound mix down the road? I think that if the mixer knows where things are, I mean, Pete Horner's got a very different editing template, mix template than anybody else. I mean, it kind of morphs with the technology. Laura Hirschberg likes her stuff a certain way and, you know, Michael Samantha likes his stuff a certain way. So I just kind of ask and say, how, how do you feel about this? I mean, there's a, but there's basic stuff. Normally you have your production dialogue. Some people like to have all the booms and then all the lobs. We like to have boom, lob, boom, lob, boom, lob. Some people don't care. So normally you have your production tracks and you have your PFX, which are production effects. So those will go right to the M&E. Jen, need to explain what M&E is? Please do. So... After you made the movie and it's all beautiful and everyone's speaking English all over the place, the people in Italy, they want it, they want to hear it too, but they don't want to read subtitles. So you do a version where you take out all English. You, leave in, you, you make it so that the um, breaths are optional. So you can use the American if you want, or then, then the Italian Brad Pitt comes in and does the, the stuff and you kind of stuff it into his, his mouth and they, they mix there. So that m and is just music and effects. And so the production effects, the, you know, the... That kind of, this kind of stuff that, you know, I'll hit my cup. That kind of stuff will go into the foreign, the m &E. So the PFXs go that way because they're clean. They don't have any dialogue on them. So they, they want it to sound as much like the real movie as possible. So you try and keep that as much as possible. Uh, if you can clear footsteps, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can. People are talking over them. Let Foley take care of it. And so then you have peer effects and then you've got your ADR. So you have to split out your ADR because so say you're, you're a corset movie and you've got the birds and it's beautiful and it's, you know, the crickets go in and the airplane comes, the person says their line. So you take their line out and then all the crickets and all that stuff go away. So you have to fill it. You have to have, find crickets and stuff so it sounds like it's all in one place. And then the new line, the clean corded ADR, it's like production. 
So that's kind of how I usually lay it out. Quick, open his back, there's a switch! Unhand me, Zerg scum! The galactic courts will show you no mercy! Ah, it's not working. Why is it not working? Where's the manual? Uh, here we go. There should be a little hole under the switch. Little hole. Got it. So reset your Buzz Lightyear. Insert paper clip. Rex, use your finger. Okay, now what? Uh, all right, let's see. Caution. Do not hold button for more than five seconds. It's not my fault. Bitácora espacial. Me he despertado del hipersueño en un planeta extraño. Now what did you do? I just did what you told me. Estoy rodeado por criaturas extrañas y desconozco sus intenciones. ¿Quién anda ahí? Amigo o enemigo? Ah, uh, amigos. We're all amigos. Me debo de haber estrellado y se me ha borrado la memoria. ¿Han visto mi nave espacial? We gotta switch him back. Well, how do we do that? I don't know. That part's in Spanish. How easily do you think your sound editing work can be made worse in the hands of the wrong re-recording mixer? If they don't EQ stuff properly or they over clean stuff up or they just take the, the, the guts out of it, they take too much. I mean, it's funny, a lot of men don't like the chestiness. They don't like to hear, I don't, I'm not, not sure why, where I personally like a little bit of, you know, chest stuff. They go too far on that. It's like, oh, you just kind of took all the, all the life out of it. You can get too noise and sometimes having a little noise is better than having them sound strange. Because you, if you denoise too much, their voices sound very thin. You can take too much meat out of it. So I think you have to be careful not to go too far. But a, a good mix, I'm, again, I'm completely spoiled with who I work with. I, I don't think I've had to worry about that in, I don't know, 20 years. So they just kind of like, they're all really, really, really good. As technology moves forward, more sound mixing duties are often pushed back to the supervising sound editor, especially on lower budget features. So when your time available on a single project kind of compresses, does that also shift your focus on elements that would otherwise be someone else's job down the line? I don't want to call it noise management, but... That's exactly what it is. It is noise management. And I always keep the original close by just in case mixers are, are, are much better at their job than I am. They, they just are. I mean, so if they have time and they don't like what I did, oh, here's the original. And then they can go, oh, let me just have another crack at it. Sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, it's fine. You did great. Hey. <laughs> but no, we totally do a lot more noise reduction stuff than we did before. Like, a lot more. You're going to a remote island, but you can only take three plugins from your Pro Tools. Which ones do you choose and why? I would take um, ones called auto-align or something, but it basically it'll take a boom and a lav and it, it'll it'll make it so they don't phase, so you can play them both at the same time. It's auto-align something. And then obviously the isotope, but with all the things that come with isotope, all the connect and the x-crackle and the x-noise and the spectral thingy and the d-wing thing and so, but that, that, that counts as one, right? <laughs> and then alterverb. You know, Gwen, it's amazing to me to notice how prolific you've kept over the course of your career. So I wonder, is there a process as to how you choose the projects you're involved in? I mean, I'm kind of out of sync with Fincher stuff, so I haven't worked with him for a while. And the same thing with Spielberg, we just got out of sync, which, which, is, which is fine. But you tend to, you know, like I have a good relationship with Joe Kaczynski, although I'm out of sync with him too now. But I know that if I was available, I could always work with Joe. You know, Jurassic was on the books for a long time. Avatar, which is kind of the next big 
thing. I mean, been, that's been on the books for a really long time. I'll probably spend quite a bit of time in New Zealand next year. Yeah, I mean, it'd be definitely get booked out. I mean, it's nice. I'm, I'm very, very, very spoiled. The WandaVision thing kind of saved my life in the pandemic because I was like, oh, look, I can do this thing from home. It was insane. It was crazy. Because of the pandemic, everything was just nuts and doing ADR with like 500 people and all looping into Source Connect and Matt were dealing with that. And it was pretty crazy. And everyone doing uh, playbacks under headphones. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. My final question for today, beautiful quote of yours, quote, I hope you never hear my work. I hope it's always invisible, close quote. Why do you think sound operates on not only a far more subconscious, but far more emotional level than most audiences understand? Most people who don't know anything, they always think about music. And music hits you in a really emotional way because it's setting the tone, setting the mood, setting the pace. And good sound work does the exact same thing. I mean, you can have a film with no music and you can manipulate the whole thing with ambience alone. This room could be completely scary and horrifying, or it could be like a freaking summer camp just by an ambience. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. If you have crappy sound in your movie, like student films, you know, I know it's student films and people don't have a lot of money, they don't think about it, but it's like, it's like, oh, it's a movie. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I'm not, I can't fully invest in this scenario that I'm supposed to be engaged in because it's like, there's this, or, or, or whatever it is. Or if you want that, I mean, I do the Student Academy Awards, which is probably why it's on my mind, but there's this one that I watched and it had this incredibly subtle light light a fluorescent light noise it got louder and louder and louder and louder and they, it was it was perfect because it, when it came to the sort of the denouement of that sound it was you know the, the whole thing it, but it's like an annoying little sound that you don't even notice at first oh god it's so nicely mixed and so well edited but it set the tone for to scene that they were trying to do there's no excuse for for people not to double down on their on the sound in their movies Particularly not now, because it's so easy to do a decent sound job. You know, even if you don't have Pro Tools, you can do it. And, you know, you know there are all sorts of different ways. And the recording, you don't need a Nagra. You don't need an expensive Nagra. You can, you know, what do you call the, the sound devices things. You can. It's pretty easy to get decent sound. You just have to take the time. You've been so generous with your time. And, and I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It, it, it really meant a lot. Well, thank you. You are very easy to talk to, so thank you. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Gwen for calling in to record this episode. And to my dear friend Eric, with whom I share this podcast project, for taking care of the final mixing time and time again. If you enjoy your program and sound design specifically, I must recommend you check out our previous episode with seven-time Oscar-winning sound legend Gary Rydstrom who Gwen mentions throughout our conversation. Please support us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. It really helps cinephiles and new listeners discover the podcast. And if you have a favorite episode, be sure to send it to a friend. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access. Soundstage Access.